This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the latest edition of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball as we come to you on uh, the day after the major league trade deadline in 2022 and also a, a sad day for baseball with the passing of the legendary Vin Scully. Uh, we're set to talk about uh, all that and a whole lot more. My name is Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York City. Fellas, what's going on? Sam's got a, the Dodgers shirt on today, deservedly so. Uh, it's a, a tough baseball day and we're going to talk some about Vin Scully, but how are you guys doing? Yeah, okay. Um, trying to keep my head on straight after what was a very busy trade deadline to begin with. And then, like you said, ending the day hearing about Vin was just a as if you know my head wasn't spinning enough. It, it got sent almost in the other direction at the same velocity. Uh, a very exciting day, ending on a very dour note yesterday. Um, but, you know, ge- generally okay. Um, it was nice to remember so many good things about what Vin Scully brought to baseball and i'm sure we'll get to that here in a moment uh and then with the trade deadline itself just remembering the exciting things that are still coming uh to the sport ben how you doing yeah i'm ben hill live and direct from uh flatbush brooklyn ditmas park specifically mm-hmm. here at home in the home office with the crib right behind me and a changing table this is where the work gets done on uh, on wednesdays uh, when we're recording this segment, but yeah, like Sam said, I mean, Sam and I are, everyone in baseball is busy right now. Sam and I are working on, for the most part, different things, but um, yeah, I was on the road last week, got back from Wichita on Sunday, um, and we got another trip coming up uh, that we'll talk about, so this is a little brief respite from the road right now uh, in the midst of a very busy time. Well, it is fitting that uh, Ben is coming to us from Flatbush, the place where Vin Scully broadcasted his first seasons as a major league radio voice for the Brooklyn Dodgers and uh, somebody who became really not just the voice of baseball, but kind of the voice of sports in America. I mean, when you think of uh, the the sports broadcaster imitation that people think of in their heads, everybody's trying to do a Vin Scully. And uh, he passed away yesterday at the age of 94 years old, 67 seasons as a broadcaster in the Dodgers organization. Um, Just uh, as incredible a life story as there can be. And for three of us, you know, baseball fans who grew up in in different parts of the country and following different teams and all that, Vince Scully was the rare thing that – uh, he kind of united all baseball fans. I mean, the the most universally beloved broadcaster uh, in the history of sports, I would say, in this country. And um, somebody who, you know, it's obviously devastating to lose a, a titan and a legend like that. But um, I would imagine, I never met Vin Scully, didn't know Vin Scully in a, in a personal sense, but I would imagine if anybody was going to say uh, that it was the happiest and best life that a person could have led, it was Vin Scully. And, um, you know, as devastated as we are uh, as the living to no longer have him among us, you know, it's sort of time that Vin Scully belongs to the ages. And I know that he was uh, and had said repeatedly that he 
really couldn't wait to join his wife, Sandy, um, after his passing, she passed uh, a few years ago and, um, you know, to be in your mid nineties and still be that madly in love with somebody is pretty incredible. And, uh, that's really the word that defines Vin Scully's life and his legacy is, uh, incredible. This is a guy who won the Ford C Frick award, the, uh, the baseball prize for, uh, a broadcaster being recognized for his lifetime service to the game. And then he broadcasted more years after that than he did before that. 34 years after he won the Ford Frick Award that he was still the voice of the Dodgers, that he was still the voice of the World Series for so long on ABC, uh, that he was you know, broadcasting NFL games and doing the PGA and all that type of stuff. Uh, he is a titan to have lost, obviously, but somebody who um, lived as good of a life as any human being could ever hope to live. Yeah, did anything ever make you pull up a chair more than just hearing out of earshot Vin Scully saying, did I ever tell you about the time? Yeah. And it didn't matter what followed. Like, the first thing that might come to your mind when I say that phrase in Vin Scully might be him talking about the time he went ice skating with Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson had never been ice skating before, but was so confident about his athletic abilities, being a football player, a baseball player, an all-around athlete at UCLA. He's like, I can handle it. And he did. And they raced around the Catskills on ice skates, but he just had so many stories. Like after news of his passing dropped last night, everybody came out with a personal story of just, Hey, here's where I was when I listened to Vin or here's what happened when I interacted with Vin. One person shared on Twitter and I, I wish I had the name handy. Basically they went up to him and said, Hey, you are the voice of sports to me. I could listen to you read the want ads and I would be happy. Vin Scully was sitting in this coffee shop with a newspaper and was like, you know what, let's do it. And for 90 <laughs> seconds, just read off the one ad, like it, in his own Vin Scully way, uh, any batter, any pitcher that came up, he would find a story for them to tell and also weave in the gameplay. One of my favorite things about Vin Scully saying like, here's a story about Madison Bumgarner, by the way, there's, there's the two and two pitch. And back to the story about Madison Bumgarner, Johnny Gomes, like any of these guys, he just he understood the rhythm of baseball. He understood the importance of baseball and the importance of storytelling. It's a game in which not a lot happens in between pitches. You need to fill time. He had a background in radio going back to his Brooklyn days. And so much of that was you need to be peppy. You need to be quick fire. But also Vin Scully was defined by the silences. Kirk Gibson hitting a home run, knowing to let the moment sit for I think it was like 39 seconds or something like that. Um, he called Hank Aaron's home run the, the time he broke Babe Ruth's record. He was there for so much. His, just being able to tell a story about Jackie Robinson on ice skates and telling that on you know, a, a Dodgers broadcast from Los Angeles, not from Brooklyn, you know, in a cable news network. Like there's just he reached so many people with through sports, through their television, through their radio. Um, that's one thing he said is like, I first got in touch with you all through your trans transmitter radio people just bring it to the game and they would hear him tell a joke and they would laugh in the stadium and just getting that instant feedback like it takes a special person to last 67 years in anything um but to do it as long as he did as great as he did to get us as excited in the 2010s about hearing Vince Scully talk as people were in the 60s and 70s is incredible um yeah it's it, it it's one of those moments that you're sad he's gone, but he, you know he lived a heck of a life, a long life, because uh, we had another 
you know, it's, it's not our sport, so we won't get too much into it. But Bill Russell passing this week had the same feeling of like, look at all he accomplished. And it's yeah. sad he's gone. It's sad he isn't here to tell those stories anymore. But those stories live on because they're insanely good. And there are just so, so many of them. And it's just so easy to make the, those guys live on because we're going to be talking to them decades uh, beyond just how long they were here on Earth. Yeah, you know, I grew up in, you know, outside of Philadelphia, and that was before, you know, being able to just listen to or, or watch any MLB game that you wanted. And, uh, you know, I was, I loved Harry Callis, the Phillies announcer. And I would hear people say that Ben Scully was the best. And as a kid who was a huge Phillies fan and kind of territorial, I was like, Vin Scully, like, who is this guy? No one is as good as Harry Callis. And I loved how excited Harry Callis would get, you know, on the home run calls, you know, swinging a long drive and get super excited. And then the few times I would hear Vin on a national broadcast, I'd be like, this guy doesn't get excited. This guy's no good. You know, this is dumb that people like him so much. And then I got older and, uh, you know, started to appreciate who he was and what he was about. And uh, around 2010, I think is really the first time I, started uh i had mlb tv and was watching it on a regular basis i was just getting really established with this job uh going on road trips living a you know late night life in general and uh i really got in the habit of watching the dodgers late at night 11 you know midnight you know having a, a glass of jameson on the rocks and uh, listening to vin scully and it took not much time at all to realize oh wow now that I'm able to tune in on a nightly basis and hear this guy at work, this is the real deal. And I just love sitting there at night in a dark living room, uh, you know, just relaxing and, and hearing him. And like Sam said, the stories um, that he could weave in and out of uh, every game, every pitch. I mean, Sam mentioned the Madison Bumgarner story. I saw that shared on Twitter today. It involved like a snake eating rabbits and Madison Bumgarner cutting up the snake and finding a live rabbit inside it. And he, we, he weaved that story, or at least one of his Madison Bumgarner stories, you know, just into the broadcast. There was a very random moment. Um, I was watching a game in 2010, 2011, and the Dodgers had a relief pitcher named uh, Ramon Troncoso at the time. And he got knocked around, didn't have a good outing. And when he was walking off the field, Vince Scully called him a disconsolate Troncoso. And for some reason, disconsolate Troncoso just stuck in my head forever to the point where it's a reference that only I have. But when I see a pitcher in that circumstance leaving, you know, getting taken out of the game after a bad outing, I'd be like, oh, look at that disconsolate Troncoso. It just became my own baseball term based on something Ben Scully said, just the way those two words sounded, disconsolate Troncoso. But he, you know, did that for 67 years. It's incalculable. Uh, the amount of people he influenced who loved listening to him. And going back to Harry Callis, when Harry Callis died in 2009, um, that was like a death in the family for me. You know, I was calling my family members. I was, uh, I went to Harry Callis' funeral. Um, it, he just meant so much to me as a Phillies fan. So when Vin died last night, that was my first thought. Like, wow, we all love Vin, but it was kind of from afar. But if we grew up in L.A. listening to him every day, I don't think I'd be able to function today. I mean, it would just be devastating, but it's devastating because of, uh, you know, how great he was when he was alive and uh, how much you know joy he provided. I mean, to just look back on your life and say, I provided this much joy to this many people. I mean, is there a better way to live? Yeah, I think that nails it. Um, and, you know, how lucky are we to have gotten a chance to experience him for, for some of our lives. And, and thankfully with the advent of 
MLB TV um, and, you know, the at bat app and being able to listen to them on the radio or watch them on TV. Um, the countless people that Vin Scully touched and made smile and made happy and, uh, and provided the backdrop, the soundtrack for their summers and for their lives in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, the amount of, you know, people that I know who grew up in, in Southern California or in Los Angeles and, you know, really did feel as though he was kind of a member of their extended families. Um, you know, even just seeing people sharing their their stories, Sam, like you talked about uh, on Twitter yesterday, you know, friend of the podcast, Todd Radom, uh, the, the great graphic designer, he shared a story on Twitter last night and he, he told me this story in person at the All-Star Game last year in which uh, he was on the same flight as Vin once. And uh, everybody got their bags and and he's standing at the baggage carousel waiting for his bag. And Vin Scully's the only other person there at the baggage carousel with him. And after a few minutes of silence, Vin Scully finally pops up and says, I guess they must have had our bags in the back of the plane. And just, you know, those little moments that people will carry with them forever because they got to have a momentary interaction with Vin Scully. Um, there is... Uh, there are not many times when a person passes away and you can say that they were the undisputed greatest that ever did whatever it was that they did. You know, so often in life we have all of those debates. Are you a LeBron person or are you a Jordan person? Are you a, you know, a Babe Ruth person or a Barry Bonds person or whatever it is. Uh, but for Vince Scully, I think there are very few people who would say uh, that there was anyone ever better than him and uh, a pretty incredible life. You know, I, I think one thing, that I, I read yesterday, uh, somebody said he is the broadcaster that every broadcaster tries to be. And the only thing that I would disagree with in that is I don't think anyone tries to imitate him because nobody knows that it can be done. Uh, I think everybody aspires to be that level of great, but he was such a unique figure in the way he broadcasted, the way he threaded stories, um, the way he did make you feel as though you were the person there with him. I mean, that's the fundamental thing that people are taught uh, as sportscasters is try to, you know, speak to someone who's listening to you on the radio or watching you on TV as though they are a close friend of yours that you're getting to describe a game to because they can't be there. And Vince Scully did that for literally billions of people. Uh, over the course of his lifetime. And, you know, I saw one thing yesterday that said um, it's very conceivable and extraordinarily likely that Vin Scully was listened to by lots of people who were born in the 1800s and lots of people who were born in the 2000s. And that is, I mean, if there is any more testament, as Ben said, if you can touch that many people, make that many people happy, um, that is all that any human being could ever ask for in life. Um, you know, a guy who didn't broadcast in the minor leagues because he didn't need to. He got a chance to start under Red Barber in the in the 1940s and uh, and moved straight into being the voice of the Dodgers. I think at 25 years old and um, is truly one of the greatest figures in the history of baseball. And uh, he will be very uh, sorely missed, obviously by by all of us who loved him. Uh, but what an incredible life! And um, and condolences to to Dodgers fans. We know we have a ton of Dodgers fans who listen to this show. And, um, you know, for everybody who felt as though he was a piece of them and they were a piece of him, uh, we're thinking of you today as well. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I really like what you said there about him speaking and always trying to be like, it's a two-way conversation. You're just not hearing the other side of the conversation because yeah. it's you. And I think especially in what we do and we recover minor league baseball and Tyler, you live this life is most minor league broadcasters. It's just one person in that booth. Yeah. So even if somebody's not trying to imitate them, they know what that's like. So often now at the big leagues, it's broadcaster analyst who's usually a former player 
and they're talking and you're just like sitting in on that and that's really cool but it takes a special broadcaster and it takes a a special situation to really make it seem like a two-way conversation when one person is talking Um, and I think him setting that as an example, it just gives so many people something to look at and, and try to emulate as best you can in your own way. Don't try to be them. You're only going to set yourself up for disappointment in that end. Put your own spin on the ball. That's what he did and carry the torch forward. Um, but yeah, when you're talking about just one person in the booth trying to bring people into the game, that's that's what we have in minor league baseball in so many stadiums across the country. And you know, I like what you said too, Sam, about how how much Vin Scully let the silences tell the story of the moments. And, and this is the, the last piece we'll, we'll wrap it up and not be too sad for, for the show today. But um, I think that's an important lesson for not just young broadcasters, but for a lot of us in life uh, to learn is that you don't have to talk through every moment. You don't have to talk over every moment. You don't have to be the active participant in every moment. Sometimes the moment is big enough for itself. And that's what Vin Scully knew and utilized best. You mentioned the Kirk Gibson home run and the Hank Aaron home run. I think after Hank Aaron hit 715, Vin Scully was quiet for something like two minutes and 15 seconds um, and then talked and explained the magnitude of the moment. Um, but let those moments be themselves in your lives. And if you are a young broadcaster, somebody who listens to it, that's an important skill to learn. Um, and and what an incredible guy and an incredible life. And uh, somebody who, as I said, will be tremendously missed in the game of baseball. Um, but there is Nothing that Vin Scully would want more than for three guys who love baseball to be able to talk baseball on the day after his passing. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do today. And fittingly enough, we get a chance to talk to Ben about two stops in the Dodger system. We heard about Oklahoma city last week, Ben got a chance to, to join us from on the road, uh, in Oklahoma, but he also hit Tulsa, um, which was a, a spot that I know we've, uh, discussed uh you know the the location in the greenwood neighborhood and um how gorgeous that ballpark is and what an anchor it is for the community oklahoma city tulsa and then you also got a chance to travel to wichita take us through uh the things that we didn't get to talk about last week ben yeah i think uh we talked quite a bit about oklahoma city last week and i've got a story up on uh milb.com now about um the dell city high school band uh, whose students work at the concession stands to help fund the program. And that to me was a interesting story to write an angle I hadn't covered before, but you know, a lot of minor league ballparks uh, do have um, concession workers who work on behalf of nonprofit organizations. So it was interesting to talk to the band directors and a couple of students and understand how that arrangement works. And Dell city is a title one school. A lot of the kids um, you know, are low income and uh, you know, the school doesn't have a huge budget and they get approximately half of their budget for the program via working uh, at the concession stands uh, for every single uh, home game. And uh, so I thought that was uh, an interesting angle to pursue. And that story's up right now. And then as Tyler said, yeah, I went to Tulsa that, I mean, I don't know. I don't pay attention to the game much when I'm at a game uh, with everything else I'm trying to do. I, the game was like two hours and five minutes, two hours and 10 minutes. And I barely came up for air when I was there uh, between one, just walking around the ballpark, getting a tour. Uh, I was there 10 years ago and a lot has changed uh, both in the surrounding neighborhood with a lot of new additions to the neighborhood. As Tyler mentioned, that's in the Greenwood district, which has a really long and interesting and, you know, at, at points, absolutely traumatic and horrific history. Um, with the uh, Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 taking place there, but there's a lot to explore in the area related to that. Then the ballpark itself, um, you know, looks great. Um, a lot, as I said, a lot of new additions, new uh, group and gathering, social areas. Um, you know, 
new concession stands from the time I was last there. Uh, it just felt really fresh. Um, I was pied in the face by the mascot at Hornsby on a between inning contest. I threw baseballs off the roof of a nearby building onto the concourse as part of a between inning contest. Uh, I met with my designated eater. The highlight was street fries, which is this, you know, tray of fries with, you know, like uh, barbecue, you know, pork and cheese and sour cream and everything else. I mean, just kind of phenomenal. Um, and I interviewed the owners and that'll be a, a story coming soon. Uh, Jeff and Dale Hubbard, whose father went, owned the team starting in the eighties. Now the Hubbard boys, brothers uh, run the team and uh, they have an interesting story um, in that you know, they weren't interested in taking over the team at first and um, then fell in love with Tulsa as their father did. And now they're at every uh, every home game just working. You know, uh, when I was there, uh, Dale was driving a, like a golf cart, uh, sh uh, shuttling fans back and forth between the ballpark and the parking lot. Uh, Jeff was um, at the front gate handing out bobbleheads. So it's just kind of an interesting ownership group dynamic. And uh, Jeff Hubbard um, actually played in minor league baseball. Not just that, he played for the Tulsa Drillers in the early 90s at a point when his dad owned the team. So how often does that happen when you're, you know, because in minor league baseball, you obviously, he wasn't signed. Uh, they were a Rangers affiliate then. He wasn't signed with the Rangers because his dad owned the Drillers. It just happened. And uh, kind of interesting uh, backstory there to own the team in which you played for that your father once owned. So anyway, that story is coming soon. She'll be up on the site later this week. In fact, perhaps the same day this podcast goes up. And yes, Wichita Riverfront Stadium, uh, that was the final ballpark I had yet to visit in the active minor league ballpark category. Um, and I had great two nights in Wichita. The weather cooled down a little bit. Uh, lots of room to move in that ballpark. Uh, like a lot of new ballparks, I think a lot still to come, both in you know sort of uh, the ballpark itself and the surrounding area, certainly the surrounding area. The ballpark is on the Arkansas River. It's called Riverfront Stadium. It's the Arkansas River. To other parts of the country, it's the Arkansas River. But if you're in Wichita, please know it's the Arkansas River. Uh, so a lot. A lot of good stuff from Wichita, uh, getting the lay of the land at that place. Very friendly people. It just seemed like I was just wandering the concourse, and there was always somebody to talk to, always someone approaching for a conversation, always someone saying hello, uh, both in and out the ballpark. I just felt very comfortable in Wichita. Really enjoyed uh, my two nights there. And, you know, we talked about the team's Turbo Tubs identity. They play as the Turbo Tubs on Thursdays. I was not there for a Turbo Tub game. But that identity relates to uh, tub races on the Arkansas River. And, you know, a troll is driving the tub in the team logo. And I visited the troll, which is a chained up troll statue underneath a grate near the Keeper of the Plains Memorial, which is uh, just a short walk from the ballpark on the river. So uh, if you're going to Wichita, make sure to find the troll. It's one of the most disturbing and weird statues you'll ever find. And I knew to go look for it. Uh, because of the Turbo Tubs identity, you know, that was on my Wichita to-do list. Find that troll. And so that was the highlight of the trip as well. So, yeah, action-packed. Uh, got back on Sunday. And uh, as I said, week at home before hitting the road again. And would you say there's a defining feature about Wichita? I feel like you said there's plenty of room to move. It's very spacious and being on the river, maybe that's it. Um, but now having seen it ex and experienced it for two nights, what would you say is the one thing anybody who visits really takes away from that place? Well, I do think the location is, is the number one thing uh, in downtown and on the river, I think is like the number one aspect about it. You know, there, the wind surge, but obviously, uh, or maybe not obviously, but Wichita has a, a big aviation history 
and uh, some of their former teams were named uh, the Arrows, uh, A-E-R-O-S. And uh, so there is a plane related architecture in the stadium. Uh, one of the ballpark bars, you know, had a kind of steel rivet type um, wall paneling and on, and, and on the bar counter, uh, you know, mimicking a plane. And the scoreboard has like what resemble the wings of a plane on top and below it. Uh, so there is definitely nods to the aviation history there as well. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I think it's uh, location, location, location. And, uh, you know, throughout the ballpark right now, there's, you know, permanent fencing, but there's certain areas that have chain link. And anytime you see chain link, it means because that area is going to change uh, with new buildings around and new areas in the ballpark. And one thing I forgot to mention, another huge standout is the Wichita Baseball Museum. Uh, a, a building on the concourse just opened and uh, that was really cool. Um, you know, it's an interactive place. It can be used as a party space. A lot of great displays related to uh, Wichita baseball history. It's divided up into three sections, um, you know, nine innings. The first three innings uh, follow the National Baseball Congress, you know, a collegiate tournament uh, held in Wichita, which had that tournament was known for like 24 hour around the clock baseball and they had a time clock. And there's actually a time clock from the NBC, the National Baseball Congress, uh, in that Wichita Baseball History Museum. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool with time clocks, all the rage these days to see what was maybe the first you know, time clock in use in, in baseball history. Uh, there's also a Negro League history uh, component and a really interesting story I'd like to explore is the a Negro League team called the Monrovians at a spot near the ballpark, I think it was called Ackerman Field, I have to look into that, the ballpark doesn't exist anymore, but there was a baseball game between Wichita's Negro League team and the KKK, which is just, wow, what a moment in baseball history. And the museum has uh, some uh, info on that. I need to look into it more. All I can tell you that I remember offhand is that the Negro League team, the Monrovians, won, and there was no incidents of you know violence of any kind reported. But, yeah, what a, what a game that must have been uh, on a lot of levels. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff related to uh, Wichita pro baseball history, uh, including the fact that the Wichita Wranglers, you know, played it, who played in Wichita through 2007. Um, they played at Lawrence Dumont Stadium and Riverfront Stadium. The new ballpark is in almost the exact location. And the baseball museum uh, has signage from Lawrence Dumont as well. So when, you know, longtime Wichita baseball fans come to a game to see the wind surge, you know, they're going to the same basic spot, you know, in which they saw probably a lot of games through the years, both collegiate and professional at Lawrence Dumont Stadium, which I believe opened in 1934 and, uh, you know, lasted a long time until it was uh, demolished and eventually made way for Riverfront Stadium. That is pretty incredible. And it's, you know, it's sort of fitting that uh, we touch on so many historic things on a day in which we talked about Vin Scully, but the amount of history and uh, history making events that occur really the the nation over you know when it comes to to baseball and its long uh roots in this country is pretty incredible stuff um and we've got an event similar to uh some history making events that is getting set to take place next week uh in Iowa last year of course they made history at the Field of Dreams in New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox with Tim Anderson's walk-off homer uh, at the Field of Dreams. This year, for the first time, minor league baseball will play a Field of Dreams game as well. On August 9th, as the Quad Cities River Bandits and the Cedar Rapids Colonels, two high-A Midwest League teams will square off. Uh, gents, you guys will both be there. 
take us through what the the plan is, Ben. I know, um, you know, Iowa, you're obviously no stranger to traveling to parks in Iowa and getting a chance to see the Midwest League for what it is, but this is an entirely new experience. Yeah, one, because it's a Field of Dreams game, a, a minor league game in a, an entirely new location, not just for me, but for anyone who will be attending it uh, on the minor league side. And another very unique aspect of this trip is, uh, yeah, I am almost in the vast majority of cases through my career, a solo traveler. But on this trip, I will be accompanied by Sam Dykstra and Kelsey Hennigan of uh, MILB.com, MLB.com fame. And I do not use the word fame lightly. So the three of us are going to be traveling uh, to Iowa. And not only that, we're going to drive to Iowa. We still have to work out some of the details, but um, we're going to leave on Sunday and get there Monday night and try to stop on, uh, you know, as many baseball themed locations as we can along the way. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, follow myself, Sam and Kelsey, you know, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and probably the minor league baseball account as well. Uh, but we'll have a lot coming from the trip itself as well as the game, which takes place Tuesday night between uh, Cedar Rapids and Quad Cities. Cedar Rapids, who are usually the Colonels, are playing as the Bunnies, and Quad Cities are playing as the usually the River, River Bandits. They're playing as the Davenport Bunnies. So both these identities harken back to you know an era of baseball over 100 plus years ago. Davenport Blue Sox hosting the Cedar Rapids Bunnies. So it should be a really interesting experience all around. Yeah, we haven't figured out yet who is going to be the Kevin Costner, who's going to be the James Earl Jones, who, if anybody's going to be taking anybody hostage on this journey, um, who's going to be playing the Moonlight Graham. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. Um, it's not going to be a one-for-one -one remake of the Field of Dreams in our travel out west, but I'm excited to just see what we see along the way. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's a unique game, so we might as well travel out there in a unique way, too. Um, and, and try to recreate the movie best we can. Uh, so I'm very excited for that journey. And just to, you know, experience a game with Ben. I mean, we've been doing MLB Pipeline Games of the Month this year, which is a little bit different experience from what Ben does. So I'm going to be taking my experience from that and doing, you know, player interviews and, and ballpark tours that we've done on social media with the Ben's Biz experience at, at a brand new ballpark that is not going to be played all the time. It's not going to be introducing you to, hey, come down here, Next week, it's going to be, hey, this is a special place. Um, come check out what it's like to play in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, and also the game itself. Like, what is the game itself going to be like? Last year's game between the White Sox and Yankees obviously ended in heroics for Tim Anderson. I don't think we're going to be able to beat that this year, but it was also very much a slugfest. Why is that? Is there something about that area that makes the ball travel well, or was it just a one-off? Anything can happen in one crazy game. So. We'll, we'll see how it's going to play out uh, next Tuesday between Quad Cities and Cedar Rapids, but uh, very excited for that. Yeah, and I understand the throwback identities and why they're being used. It makes sense for this nostalgia-tinged historical game. But, yeah, the Cedar Rapids team is called today the Colonels. So the irony of the only corn-themed team in baseball changing its name when they play at the Field of Dreams is not lost on me. That is a very good point that I had not thought of. Uh, the game coming up on August 9th. You can follow all of our coverage at MILB.com. And uh, he is Benjamin Hill. Enjoy the, the road trip, and we'll talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. We'll have lots to talk about. We had lots to talk about today. We're good at talking. That is true. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Sam. Hey, it's 
It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, as we talked about previously, uh, Sam and I are very uh, excited to go see the MILB at Field of Dreams game in Dyersville, Iowa on Tuesday, August 9th. That game is going to be between the Cedar Rapids Colonels playing as the Bunnies and the Quad City River Bandits playing as the Blue Sox. I got that right. And uh, we want to talk about this game more. And to do that, we have a very special guest, the general manager of the Cedar Rapids Colonels or Bunnies, if you will, uh, Scott Wilson. Scott, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Pleasure. And uh, so before we get into the game itself, uh, you've been with the Colonels for what, the better part of two decades now? Yeah, 17 years. So 17 years. And prior to that, you're you're an Iowa guy through and through, correct? Yep. So 17 years here and before that, yeah. Uh I've been in Iowa the most of my 52 years. Uh so yeah. I've been right here in this area. Uh most of my life grew up here, left here for about eight or nine years. Um, or yeah, about 10 years doing a, a retail traveling career and then uh I'm back. So yeah, and so obviously, I mean, the whole country knows the movie Field of Dreams, but for you being an Iowa baseball team and, uh, you know, from Iowa, you know, what does that movie meant to you in your life? And just, uh, you know, what role does it play in the state at large? So it's, uh, um, you know, it was, it's, it's really interesting. It's super cool to have that just an hour away from us um, when you're watching it with any friends or family. I mean, everybody relates to it on uh, some capacity. Um, I, I thought it was special already and then a few years ago uh you know a, a young teenager made an error and went onto the field and did some donuts and tore it up and so myself and the quad cities team and uh, the clinton team at that point in time went up there and assisted with the repair of the field so i've got a little blood sweat and tears into it so now it's even you know the movie field itself i've even got that little attachment to it so i really like it uh during pandemic year we went up there and it was really busy when they had a dining in the outfield I mean, uh, folks were coming there and they had tables just spaced out, you know, 30 feet apart and they were having dining in the outfield. So what a what a cool way, uh, you know, sort of to keep utilizing the field in, in all capacities and to think the number of folks from around the world that come to see that field every single year. And uh, they share the numbers from, uh, you know, Japan, where it's super popular for folks to come over and be able to even do that. So uh, when they when they talked about this game, um, I love the throwback. I love that. What it's talking about is the 125 years of history of both of our teams, Cedar Rapids and Quad Cities, has in baseball in this area, what we've meant to Eastern Iowa. And um, just, I mean, I, I think that's tremendous. And um, it, it sort of just keeps that going because I don't want there to ever be, you know, a generation that doesn't see this movie and be able to attach to it. And how do you not look at this movie and, and not romanticize baseball? I mean, that's where I'm at. I was like, it's just... You know, even if you're not a baseball fan, I mean, this you watch this movie, you are. I mean, you have to be. Yeah. And you said you already put your you know blood, sweat and tears into this field. Uh, very familiar with the location. But being involved in the game itself, if you can take us through that process uh, from your perspective, from the team's perspective, you know, how did you first get approached about playing in this game? And you know, what was the process been like of being involved? 
so it's um, unusual for me because on my schedule, it's a road game. So I'm working really hard for this road game at this point in time. I mean, uh, we're doing all kinds of stuff. But um, so the Quad Cities uh, started a conversation last fall. And uh, I think uh, Peter Woodfork approached me at winter meetings and said they had started conversations. And would we be, you know, open to it, interested, all this? I'm like, Absolutely. I mean, you know, it kind of sounds cool. I mean, that we're talking about this, you know, months away and to be able to do that. And um, it just, you know, started kind of snowballing, I think, from there. Because it is a Quad Cities home game, there are some, some things that MLB and MILB needed to do to work out. <clears throat> sort of purchasing that game from them, making them whole on that Tuesday night and <clears throat> working with all of us like busing. And then, you know, I guess there's it's right on top of the All-Star game and everything else. So it's been a very busy couple of weeks getting everything finalized. Uh, all the uniforms are now in-house. Uh, we're doing some promo pieces for that. Uh, but in being involved in the the game leading up to it, these two weeks leading up to it, it's been absolutely crazy. I probably have 60 emails and uh, text messages, which my phone is beeping again, going off. Uh, and they're all about FOD. I mean, right now, I mean, it's like this game is uh, going to be so crazy next Tuesday night. And, and both Quad Cities and I are in the middle of a homestand right now. So we're still trying to play our regular games and prepare for this game next Tuesday. But um, our board of directors couldn't be more excited. Our foundation board, um, all of our fans to think that the game is uh, sold out um, at this point in time with, you know, 7,800 people coming to what more than double the population of, of Dyersville on a night to watch a minor league game between two teams, but with 125 years of history on each team, um, I, there's just so much nostalgia going to be happening at this game. Uh, um, I, I think that they're going to do the pregame. Well, I thought, I thought MLD did a per, MLB did a terrific job last year. Uh, with that whole major league game. And I, I'm looking for that same ambiance for this minor league game. And our players are, are starting to get excited about it. Uh, I think uh, the fact that it comes uh, two weeks after the draft and a week after the trade deadline, um, our, our clubhouse is still looking forward to it now after those that are still available to play in this game. So, Yeah. And you mentioned just the ambiance of it. I think anybody who watched that game last year between the White Sox and Yankees, felt like it was an entire production. It was a baseball game at the center, but it was, it felt like watching a movie. Um, this is a minor league game and, and minor league games bring in their own level of entertainment. And, you know, like you said, there is going to be that throwback nature with the, the blue Sox and the bunnies as well. Is there anything you can preview? We don't want to spoil any surprises or anything that's coming, but is no. there anything you can preview about what that ambiance is going to be like in a kind of uniquely think- minor league way? Yeah, in our world, we've been giving a master list. Um, it's it's really interesting, I think. I've went through it with a team downstairs. So our bus leaves here like 11.45 to head up. Uh, they're going to stop at a, a small town uh, police station about eight minutes outside of Dyersville, have a police escort into town after MLB security searches the bus and does this. So this police escort thing is kind of cool because I think uh, the players on the bus feel pretty important when you're being led down the uh, interstate or the highway at that point in time, leading into Dyersville and then pull into town around the lunch hour. They'll arrive, both buses, uh, well, both teams will arrive at the field between 115, 130 type time. Um, the field, it doesn't open to the public until three. 
So up in, at that point in time, there's a lot of different minute by minute things that are kind of going on. They are going to film live intros. They want it like Monday Night Football, like, hey, I'm Seth Gray. I'm from blah, 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 Ohio. And, you know, introductions of all of the players they're, they want to film and have that as well. But more importantly, there's an hour and a half there where there's nobody but the teams available. So they want them to walk the movie site, play catch on that movie site field, walk the corn like we all saw the big leaguers doing last year, taking selfies left and right you know, to be able to do that. I think um, giving, giving the guys the opportunity to do that um, is really what they're, you know, super excited about at this point in time. My team oftentimes on the, in route to Appleton will stop by the field, you know, just get out, play a little catch on the field and then head on up to Appleton because um, we always think it's nostalgic. Uh, I'm going to make the players think it's nostalgic because we think it's cool. So on those bus trips, once in a while, we always drop off and make that happen. So I think the guys are excited to have some time to wander and, and do those kind of things. Um, you know, cause the night is going to, it's going to be crazy. I can't imagine the adrenaline you get when you walk out on that field. We've heard some really cool things, uh, things that baseball people don't, I mean, baseball people know, but other people maybe don't where it sits, just imagining this field at night. Um, you're out in the middle of nowhere, so there's no other lights. So you think about how well, you're going to be able to see the ball and everybody wants to ask Tim Anderson that same question. Like how well did you see the ball coming at you when it's pitch black at night? And the only light is the light on the fields. You don't have to worry about a batter's eye. There's no, nobody out there in the cornfield. I mean, it's not, you know, th those are the kind of scenarios you think about. It's like complete black sky around you and a ball coming at you. Like what's that look like a, you know, dodgeball. I mean, it's like so much bigger and the, so those kind of things that we, you know, I was just talking with some of the guys about it like that. And, you know, they, I think there's excitement down there. Um, you know, the interesting part about it is it's minor league baseball and we're a week away from the game, but we're not ready to fill the pass list yet. Cause you never know who's going to get injured above us. Who's going to be able to do those kind of things and who's going to be on the roster next, you know, Tuesday when we, when we open that uh, road trip uh, with the quad city. So uh, like I said, it, it, it really was their home game. And, and at this point in time, it's a road game for both of us because MLB owns the game and purchased it. Um, that's a, the biggest question has been like, you know, oh, why can't you guys sell merchandise? Cause it's not our game. I mean, we, we're allowed to sell merchandise five days after the game to be able to do that. Um, so I, and I, Unless I'm crazy, I haven't even seen that much merch. I'm excited to get to the game because I want to find something that has bunnies on it. I mean, I've seen everything the players get to take and keep, and I'm thinking, doggone it, if I was only the size of a player, and I'm not. So uh, that's like I don't get one of the sweatshirts or the undershirts or all of those kind of scenarios. So I'm I, the guys love the uniforms. Uh, I love that they look wool but are now polyester. And we did a throwback uniform in 2005. And we did it in still not a wool blend, but it was a weird thing that was super hot. And now it's not. Now it's uh, going to be a very comfortable uniform that is, uh, you know, the guys are excited because they're going to wear the, the short knicker pants with the tall socks. And, you know, we've never done that. I mean, there's occasionally a guy who comes in from college that still wants to show a little sock, but uh, the rest of the staff breaks him of it sooner or later <laughs> and goes with the, you know, you got to hook your back pleat on the thing and wear long pants and, I, you know, I love the old nostalgic look, so I'm excited about it. Yeah, very excited to see that. We talked about how Iowa relates to the, the film, Field of Dreams, but this is kind of an introduction for a lot of people, maybe people who didn't watch the game last year and, and want to tune in this year, uh, to Iowa baseball, just generally. And like you said, you have you know a, a long history in the state. What What is 
the Iowa brand of baseball, maybe away from field of dreams. Um, you know, gosh, I, I, I try to relate that back to a lot of things. I mean, I guess in our world, uh, the biggest things that come up for me, whenever the difference is it, it's really Midwest league. I mean, but it's like, when you think about, you know, kind of where all of us are that have been around here for so long, there wasn't any, there's nothing else for folks to do in the summertime in Iowa. I mean, you're either, you know, you know, you plant your fields or you do your crops and that kind of stuff. And yes, the big cities are here, but you know, from Iowa's perspective, baseball's in. I mean, people live this, they, they want this, they, they want to be a part of this. And um, I, I look back at it and think our host families were some of the very first people to purchase tickets. When we went live with staff, they wanted to make sure they were on that list to be able to do it. The lifelong relationships that these players create with our fans and our host families. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's absolutely an attachment. Um, you know, like we, we have an Aiden, I just go back. We have an Aiden Hart scholarship here. Uh, when Nick was played here in 2009 and then um, uh, when he passed away, I mean, I mean, at that time, we, one of the, his favorite places to have played when he passed away in 2009, his parents said were um, in Cedar Rapids. So they created a scholarship here. We now have a, a scholarship for both a male and a female team player uh, scholarship that uh, they are involved in choosing uh, every single year um, on that. And, you know, that, that speaks volumes about, I mean, how the relationship with the fans and the relationships with these host families and, and, uh, how it's lifelong, I mean, to be able to do that. So, um, I'm excited that, uh, you know, people are going to come in and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, we get to show off, um, Iowa nice and Iowa isn't all cornfields. It's kind of cool that the stadium is in the middle of one, but there's some actual towns in Iowa and cities and, uh, and folks that we live here. I was like, I didn't grow up on a farm. I just went to visit them once in a while and then happily got to leave after the weekend of my cousin's farms because bailing hay is hard work and, you know, taught me how to pull a tarp, though. I and mean, I guess it prepared me for that. Uh, so. So you heard it here first. There are actual towns in Iowa, not just <laughs> cornfields. Hopefully uh, not first. Hopefully people. Uh, yeah. 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 I guess well, you, you heard know. it here. Reiterated. <laughs> oh, it might be a first for some people. It, might be. it could be. It could be. I mean, there's some um, East yeah, Coast folks we, that I'm sure are not familiar with the towns in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Dyersville, as you said, is a population of not many. And, and thus, there are only two hotels. There. That's why folks do not stay in Dyersville when they come to the game. So, yeah, yeah. Precisely. Uh, Scott, well, before we let, let you go, I want to go back to this uh, identity you will have for the game, this throwback identity. Yeah. The bunnies. Um, you know, there's been a lot of different baseball team names through the course of professional baseball history. I can't think of any other cities who were named the Bunnies. You know, why was Cedar Rapids team named the Bunnies? So um, I'm going to go back off the story that I think goes back to 130 years. So there are shirts and they're out there right now. Initially, we were the Canaries. Uh, in the very first year or two. I mean, apparently we chose the most intimidating mascots they could possibly think of back <laughs> in the day. And, I mean, Mr. Shucks isn't real intimidating either. So, I mean, I, I get it. But, um, and then at one point in time, we were the rat. So the rabbits and bunnies are kind of what they said during that block of time where we were together. The flying bunny is now the, the thing they use. But there's a bunch of shirts out there and they say, see der rabbits. And they think that that play on the name was how they chose rabbits as the initial thing. And then I don't know why they decided to switch to bunnies, you know, blue bunny ice cream from Iowa, but it wasn't created 125 years ago. So, I mean, that wasn't a case back then. 
uh, to be able to do that. So, um, but I think the cedar rabbits had a lot to do with it. There's a whole bunch of nostalgia kind of around that in the history museums around here. And um, I think growing up, I had a t-shirt that said something like that. I had no idea what it meant. Uh, but, you know, now I look back on it and think that that 20 year span where we were the rabbits and bunnies is probably something to do with that. And then, and then we started picking a slightly more intimidating mascots and, and then all of a sudden you switched over and started becoming whatever major league affiliate you were forever. And uh, as everybody knows, the way that affiliates had changed in every two to four years back then, that was really expensive in the souvenir shop when you changed. So, um, but I can't wait. I'm, I'm really excited once the game is played and we have the opportunity to put some bunny merchandise in. I do anticipate that in 23, I'll be able to, you know, carry and have some bunny merchandise brought back out. I love, we've always loved the logo. We've done, like I said, we did a throwback in 2004 or five. Um, it was exciting back then. Um, I, you know, I can't wait to get some of the bunnies merchandise back in. And I'm sure at that point in time, I have many of season ticket holders who have been to most of the years we've been around that uh, could tell me some more about uh, how the bunnies came alive. Well, the bunnies are, are coming alive on uh, Tuesday, August 9th for the MILB, uh, the minor league baseball field of dreams game in Dyersville, Iowa. Um, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time hey. to, uh, to talk with us about it and looking forward to seeing you uh, at the game. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Travel Thank safe. Well, as we noted at the start of the show today, uh, the Major League trade deadline was yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday the 3rd. We wanted to bring you the freshest, hottest takes possible uh, so here we are on Wednesday after the August 2nd trade deadline in which a ton of prospects got moved. And in fact, some prospects actually got moved prior to deadline day, including the most highly ranked prospect who was traded uh, ahead of the major league trade deadline. That was shortstop Noel V. Marte he went from the Seattle Mariners to the Cincinnati Reds in the Luis Castillo trade. Uh, the Reds made several deals. They've kind of reshaped their farm system, but the team with which we need to start is the Washington Nationals, which traded away a generational talent in Juan Soto, but got back a whole bunch of prospect talent in return. Juan Soto and Josh Bell head to the Padres, um, but there is a group that is headed to the Nationals that is extensive in its prospect talent. That includes shortstop C.J. Abrams, um, who has graduated from his prospect status, but a guy we have followed for a very, very long time. Same thing from Mackenzie Gore, the left-handed pitcher who was the third overall pick in 2017 for the Padres and then come a lot of the younger talents Robert Hassel the third uh the slugging outfield prospect who was taken eighth overall in the 2020 draft uh and a guy who has really put an impact on uh, his prospect status this year James Wood uh same deal with him another outfielder who was the 62nd overall pick in 2021 he's just 19 years old uh he'll make that move um Harlan Susana right-handed pitcher who's just 18 was signed in the 2022 international signing class by the Padres he is headed that direction as well um into the the nation's capital or into the at least minor league ranks of the team in the nation's capital. Sam, we start with this uh, because it is the biggest headline of deadline day. I think we're probably both on the same page in that we're, uh, you know, as people who observe baseball, I think you kind of think to yourself, how, how in God's name do you trade Juan Soto to begin with? But if you're going to, uh, you got to get a ton of talent back. And the Nationals certainly did that. They did. If we're going off like the freshest, hottest takes of like 
how to view this package. Yeah. I thought it would have to be like earth shattering. Same here. And I don't think it's that. Same here. I don't quite. Yeah. It's great. It's it like we were talking about it. It's a lot so of talent. Like, it's a right. it's a good haul, but is it, it a might Juan be the biggest Soto haul ever? Right. Yeah. In like right. the the modern era in terms of trades in baseball, um, you know, people have made comparisons to other sports. I'm not going to do that here because I think that doesn't help us, and I want to keep the focus on baseball. But it it might be like the biggest haul we've ever seen in the modern era for baseball. It still feels a little short to me. Um. Right now, you know, like, yes, I, we focus on prospects here and Abrams and Gore are no longer prospects. So it doesn't look great when on the surface, you're only adding two top 100 guys for somebody like Juan Soto. But at the same time, like they could have added additional names and I'm sure San Diego would have kept saying yes. Like you want not just top talent, you want a deeper farm system because that's one thing the Nats really struggle right now is depth in their farm. Um, yes, they made a lot of trades last year to, you know, include one big one for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, but that hasn't exactly gotten them into an, a top 15 system. This might, but it's still not exactly where you need to be if you are going to trade Juan Soto and be like, listen, this is a full rebuild now. Um, I like James Wood a lot. I think he could, you know, he's had some health issues in the first half of the season. All freak stuff doesn't seem like it's a long-term worry. He's massive. He's really tall, but he also plays center field really well. I remember talking to people in spring training, hearing like, hey, listen, if you think he's just fast and he's going to slow down, that's not going to happen. He can play center field. He could be kind of like what O'Neill Cruz is to, to shortstop. He could be that prospect in center field. Now, that he has a long way to go. He's only played single A ball so far. Still a lot to prove. Still needs to pick up at bats. But he makes loud contact. He makes a good amount of contact. He covers a lot of ground in center. Really good prospect. Robert Hassel III, another center field prospect in his own right. The best overall hitter, I think, in this group, and that includes C.J. Abrams, because C.J. Abrams just hasn't found ways to impact the ball at the upper levels. Um, but he can really hit it. He's showing burgeoning power. I talked to him in the spring. He said, listen, I've always hit home runs. Home runs are going to come. He's close to meeting his 2021 total already. That's only going to increase as he gets older, as he gets stronger. Not that really worried about him. And Susana is really good. Like Susana is as good a complex level pitcher as you're going to find. They, the Padres only signed him in January. He's already touching 102. He's sitting around 98. Uh, so the fastball is there. The secondaries need to come. Command needs to be there. He has a long road ahead of him. Anything could happen there. He is very much a lottery ticket, but he's very exciting for a guy who just entered pro ball eight months ago. So there are the exciting pieces there. It's just the Nats system isn't where I thought it would need to be. I thought maybe you could throw in a Jackson Merrill, who isn't a top 100 prospect now because, he, again, like Wood, he's been out for a lot of the first half. But when he's played, he's been super exciting as a shortstop, another premium position prospect. I thought they could have thrown him in. The projects pr probably would have said yes. The other thing about this deal that we haven't mentioned yet, Josh Bell was included. Yeah. You know, if, if we took Josh Bell away from this trade, and it was just these guys for Juan Soto, I'd right. be like, that's still a little short. Now all of a sudden you throw in an all-star caliber first baseman. I know, you know, there's a lot of NLs first baseman. Josh Bell's been really good in the first half. Really, really good. You could have spun him off in a separate deal and got a few extra other pieces. Not yeah. that I'm saying they, they should have traded him to another team, but you could have done this deal for Juan Soto and then went back to the Padres and said, okay, give us your number five and seven prospect for Josh Bell, and nobody would have batted an eye. 
Now, there's like a, a lots of other pieces of this that we don't need to get into because we're a minor league podcast and like right. Eric Hosmer part of it. Right. How that didn't happen and ended up being Luke Voigt, all that. Interesting whatever. prospect going the other way in the Eric Hosmer deal too, though. Jay Groom, who is a, a former very highly ranked prospect, goes from the, the Red Sox organization who drafted him in the first round uh, to San Diego. So there are interesting elements across the board. But yeah, it just... Um, you know, we were talking last week about the parameters that this deal was going to need uh, to to fall into in order to be sort of what we thought it would be. And it, you know, I don't know if now granted, all of these guys could blow up and be, you know, major league all-stars and, and all of that, but it's Juan Soto. It's literally Juan Soto going the other way. You right. have two and a half years of team control for a guy who's got similar numbers to Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle at this stage in his career. And who is younger than Mackenzie Gore. Right. Yeah. Incredible. I, I they're right. They're right around the same age. Let me double check that as I'm saying it. But still, like when we talk about some of these prospects, some of right. them are Juan Soto's age. Exactly. Juan Soto was younger than a handful of guys who were playing in the futures game. And he's right. been in the big leagues for four years. You know, yeah. it's just, it is a, a stunning deal. Is there any team in sports that has had a weirder five-year span, let's say, than the Washington Nationals? I mean, you look at the Nationals, they won a World Series three years ago, but also over the last five years, they've lost Bryce Harper, Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer, Anthony Rendon. Like, you see all of this talent just bled out of that franchise, and... Yeah, there are exciting pieces that come back now. Um, but man, it is a it's gotta be a tough day to be an ads fan. Yeah, and I, I will correct myself real quick. Juan Soto is four months older than McKenzie. Four Moore. months My older point still. Just save your emails. That's right. all I'm saying. Save your tweets, <laughs> save your emails. Let's be accurate. But yeah, I somebody's put this out there too. Like it's it almost feels like Ben talked about a troll earlier. Imagine if a troll came to you with a deal and just said, Hey, your team is going to win a World Series. Awesome. I will take it. That Amazing. sounds great. Okay, but, but you're, you're going to have, like, let's say they asked this question in 2014. Like, but, I mean, it's going to come without Bryce Harper. Okay, really? The Nats are going to win without Bryce? Yes, it's going to come without Bryce Harper. All right, well, uh, you're going to give Steven Strasburg a major contract. Great. He's not really going to pitch much under that contract. Really? Okay. You're going to have this great kid who blows up at 19 years old. He's going to be the star of that World Series team. Amazing. He's going to be traded three years later. Okay. Like it's, it's just like the, the Faustian bargains that are being yeah. made to, to get that trophy, which flags fly, fly forever. It's great that DC has a world series winner and that was a great world series run. That was a great team, very enjoyable team to watch. It's just so crazy that we're already here <laughs> talking about them potentially yeah. entering a rebuild and trading. And I think, you know, we talked about this last week, Mike Rizzo said this didn't enter the conversation. I think, that's some spin. I really do wonder how much the ownership change is really playing a role here. If they were looking at the roster as it's currently made and said, Hey, we're, we need to enter a rebuild right now. Yeah. Um, and that's going to mean trading Juan Soto potentially before he becomes a free agent. Do the next owners want to do that? Probably not. I'm sure right. there's no back channel discussions of like the new owner saying, Hey, if you're going to do it, do it now. We're not going to buy the team, but it just makes it, an easier sell to be like, we're going to buy the team this off season and it's going to be remade in our image. We're going to be the ones guiding it to be the next contender in DC. I'm sure that played a role, whether they're going to acknowledge it or not. Cause otherwise why make this trade? Why make this trade? Crazy, man. It is, 
It is crazy. Uh, and also, if you're somebody who's rich enough to own a major league sports franchise, I think your your MO should be, no, keep Juan Soto. We'll figure out a way to sign him when we buy this team. But, uh, you know, it's not my money. Um, we're not going to discuss the the major league side of it, obviously, as a minor league podcast. But you, the, the line flags fly forever. Man, if I'm a Padres fan and A.J. Preller is doing what he's doing and that ownership group is behind what he's doing, what an exciting time for that team, for that fan base. Um, and, you know, it's – it's something that I think we don't see enough of in sports these days is a team saying, screw it. We're putting all of our chips into the center of the table. We are going for it and seeing teams going for it is very exciting. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the kind of the deal with the devil that the the nationals may have had to make, you know, it does kind of remind you of the Cubs, the Cubs went in 2016. They dismantle that core very quickly as well. Uh, again, behind an ownership group that has gobs of money, um, and that was a strange situation that continues to go on and be strange. And maybe strangest is the fact that we wake up on August 3rd, Wilson Contreras is still a member of the Cubs. That's a little baffling, you know, um, but there are a lot of teams out there who are trying to figure out what they are going forward. Um, and, you know, it's uh, I, I'm very much a fan of teams that say we are going for it. And it was not just the Padres who did it, maybe not to the same extent, but the Seattle Mariners go out and they get the best pitcher on the market uh, in being able to to snag Luis Castillo from the Reds. And they give up a lot of talent in that deal. Noel V. Marte goes the other way. He's the number 17 ranked overall prospect. Uh, uh, in baseball, according to our rankings. And now he's the top prospect in that red system. The reds made some moves. They brought in a lot of talent. Um, but I like what the Mariners did there. Did they get Juan Soto? No, but did they bolster something that everybody wants to bolster in July and August by adding a top flight pitcher at the trade deadline? Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, that, that trade felt like a, a market center. Like when yeah. that happened first, yeah. and I was like, Oh, if this is where we're setting it for Luis Castillo, was not Juan Soto, and I think has a year less of control. Right. Then I'm like, okay, so now we know just how further above that trade needs to go. I I do think the Nats package is better, but it's not significantly better. But anyway, to your point about the Mariners-Reds trade to begin with, that's as close to a win-win trade as I think you're ever going to find. Because the Mariners system, like you're saying right now, this is an organization – that is trying to get better. They have tried to improve. They made moves in the offseason. They added Julio Rodriguez on opening day. You know, I know he's out injured now, but like is basically the runaway favorite to win AL Rookie of the Year. Is the most exciting player they've had probably since Ichiro, I guess. I was going to say Griffey, but we'll say Ichiro. Um, and, you know, they are making moves to be part of this expanded AL playoff picture. And they're not quite there yet. So they need something to push them over the edge. Luis Castillo could push them over the edge. He could be their game one starter in any playoffs here. But they have had such a long drought that I'm sure they're more desperate than any franchise in baseball. to just The longest drought in major American professional sports. Mariners have not made the playoffs since 2001. Right. So the Reds, maybe knowing that and knowing that Jerry DePoto is a noted trader, and I say trader with a D, uh, not with a T. He's a riverboat gambler. Yeah, a guy who's willing to make moves probably said, okay, great. You can have our best pitcher, one of the best pitchers in baseball, some of the best stuff in baseball, and it's going to cost you a significant part of your depth. And it's going to cost players at premium positions. It's going to cost Noel V. Marte, who's gotten really hot lately. I think 
answered some of the questions all of us had in the first half about his hitting ability um, at high A. Edwin Arroyo, who's a breakout prospect this year, a second rounder from last year, who's a good defender at shortstop, had some questions about the bat. Now is one of their most productive hitters in the Mariner system before this trade. Getting those two guys is, is big for Luis Castillo. And you look at the red system now, it's one of the best in baseball. I don't know exactly where I haven't charted out like where I would place them right now, but you have Noelvi Marte at shortstop, maybe a third baseman. Ellie De La Cruz, who might be one of the most electric players in minor league baseball, yeah. has since been called up to double A, so he won't share an infield with Marte yet. Shortstop slash third baseman, I would love to see him play center field at some point. Matt McLean was their first round pick last year. He's a shortstop. Uh, Arroyo, who I just mentioned, is a shortstop. Jose Barrero, not technically a prospect, but was just a AAA, got called up today to Cincinnati. They are loaded up at premium positions. You can move those guys around. Eventually, it'll sort itself out. But the Reds are loaded up now at just the right spots. And if that is a team that you know, has tried to say, hey, listen, this year we're not competing. We are trying to build up the farm system. This is the way you do it. And they got super exciting. So I like the Mariners may have increased their playoff odds like 5% which might be enough. Like when there are multiple wildcard spots now, that might be just enough. They learned in a very painful way what a 5% difference can mean to you last year. And if you're just saying like, well, all they're trying to do is make the playoffs. A, again, that means more out there just to get to the playoffs. And I think we lose sight of the fact that sometimes expanded playoffs means more chances for something to go weird. One team gets hot in October and that's all it's going to take to run train. Like the Dodgers and Yankees might be the two best teams in baseball throwing the Mets in there too. They can have a bad stretch in October and it's over. One team can get hot and, and make a run. How many wildcard teams have we seen win World Series? So all you need is a seat at the dance. And the Mariners are trying harder than ever to get there. And good on them. And uh, remember, new playoff format in 2022. Top two teams in each league get a bye into the divisional round uh, or in the division series, I should say. I don't want to say divisional round and sound like I'm uh, projecting the NFL playoffs. Uh, So the division series will automatically see the one and two seeds in each league host the winner of the six at three and five at four best of three wildcard series. That's something to keep in mind uh, as the playoffs get closer and closer. Um, Sam, who else stood out to you as far as deals that went down uh, at the deadline? The, the angels, I think uh, baseball fans have been pulling for the angels to get it figured out for the last several years. So uh, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani can finally play some meaningful postseason games. Uh, They sold quite a bit. They brought in some very good talent. Logan O'Hoppy is their new top prospect uh, in that system. He is their new and only top 100 prospect as well. He's number 86 overall. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, only one, I have to, I would be remiss if I did not point this out. Only one team in baseball made zero moves. Uh, the Colorado Rockies for uh, very Rockies reasons uh, just decided Oh, we're 22 and a half back in the division, 10 and a half back in the wild card. We'll, we'll stand pat. We're fine. Um, and, you know, there were teams that I think continued looking at what their next step is. You know, we saw the Marlins making moves. We saw the Twins making moves. Um, there are 
so many teams that are kind of in that spot right now where you look at them and think, okay, is this team going to win the division? You know, the, the twins are a game up right now uh, in the American league central. Did their deals get them to a division title? The Marlins are eight and a half back in the wild card. Do they continue building around this young core and push themselves to chase down the Mets or Atlanta? Um, what else stood out to you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Angels because we did talk about this last week and anybody looking for us to pick up the conversation about could Otani be traded, that didn't happen. Like the the Angels did shut that down uh, a little bit before the trade deadline day itself. So we knew that wasn't going to happen, but they were still sellers. And that Logan Ohapi trade is fascinating to me because he went straight up for Brandon Marsh, who is a former top 100 prospect, a bona fide center fielder, can really play out there but has struggled offensively in the majors, has not clicked. Do the Phillies think they can figure something out with him or are they just buying somebody, you know, who they think can play center field? I think JT Real Muto being in Philly, obviously, you know, usurps the importance of a Logan O'Hoppy as good as Logan O'Hoppy is. Um, I love his defensive skills behind the plate. I think he's a real leader back there. He's shown some offensive improvements this year at double-A Redding. Redding is a hitter's park, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, you would think Brandon Marsh at one point seemed like the future of the Angels outfield alongside Mike Trout. And for them to sell him for a guy who, you know, could be now the catcher of the future was just such a fascinating trade from both sides. Like the Phillies get somebody who's very controllable, but they're selling one of their few top 100 prospects to make it happen. I, I just find that that deal fascinating. Um, does Marsh really move the needle for them? We'll see. They have to be the ones to figure out if he can hit and improve his hitting ability to make him stick. Um, are they going to regret Ohapi? We'll see. I mean, is the bat going to be good enough, or is he just going to be a solid defensive catcher for years? Uh, we'll have to work that out. He's probably going to deb debut next year. So I just thought that was fascinating. If if you're the Angels, you like adding a top 100 prospect. You like at least having a shining star in that system now. Um, that's pretty big. But, um, yeah, you look at some of these other deals. I think Oakland – you know, making some moves for some pitching. I'm a big Ken Waldachuk fan, having watched a few of his outings. His slider is really, really good. His fastball is good. He said he basically just has pitches that he aims at all four quadrants of the zone and just lets them ride. You know, it, his slider is always going to be cutting arm side. So, you know, if he wants to go inside on right-handers, he can use the slider. If he wants to go away from lefties, whatever. Uh, I wrote up a story about him. You can check that out about, about Ken Waldachuk. Just search Ken Waldachuk in my name. Um, and that'll pop up and you see how killer his stuff is. But he learned that from the Yankees. The slider is a whirly, is the whirly that the Yankees have taught. What happens when you get him out of that system? We'll see. He was already knocking on the door of the, the majors. So Oakland getting a potential rotation piece, piece I think, is pretty big. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a, a crazy deadline. Uh, we got the big blockbuster, uh, not quite as big as we thought. We got another big blockbuster in Luis Castillo, um, which, again, I thought, would be the market setter that it wasn't quite. Uh, and yeah, well, this feels like with the amount of prospects moved and the amount of big prospects moved, this feels like a, a deadline that won't be just defined by what happens now. Like what happens in San Diego now that Juan Soto's there, what happens in Seattle? That's how we're going to view it immediately. But years down the line, who would, who of these prospects are we going to say like, they really gave up him. Can you believe that? Like that, what were they not seeing at the time? That That's certainly – I think there's the potential for that with James Wood if he continues on his path. I think there's potential for that with an Edwin Arroyo. 
Um, even if Spencer Steer, who joined the Reds organization from the Twins in the Tyler Molly trade, he was on the cusp of the top 100, kind of top 100 adjacent. But he can really, really hit, and he's another infield option uh, there for Cincinnati. So, yeah, we'll, we'll check back in on this deadline in a, in a few years, but it's going to be memorable no matter what. So you can check out all of our coverage, MLB.com slash pipeline, MILB.com as well. And uh, take a look at the prospects that uh, your team brought in or shipped out, unless you're a Rockies fan. And uh, with that, we'll step aside. Josh Jackson joins us for Ghosts of the Miners coming up next, and then we're back to wrap it up. Thanks as always to uh, Joshua Jackson. Uh, we'll have some cool ghosts-esque things on the sites uh, next week for the Field of Dreams game. And uh, before we get out of here, time to tell you about the games that we're watching on MILB.TV next week. The MLB uh, or the MILB game at the Field of Dreams will be carried on MLB Network. Um, so you don't need a MILB TV subscription for that. But while you're waiting for it or while you're uh, immersed in your love of minor league baseball after it, you can watch some games, and Sam and I will give you some options. How about that? Yeah, I was going to say Midwest League Baseball on national TV. Just excites Pretty me cool. no matter the venue. Yeah. Pretty cool. Hopefully that's a thing that can continue to happen in the future. Uh, I'm going to go as you are going to go, Tyler, and this was your idea first, so I want to give you all the credit. Um, but in terms of you know the trade deadline just happened, there are going to be guys going to new teams. Some of that has already happened. Uh, the Nats today have said that James Wood will be going to Fredericksburg. Their single A affiliate makes sense. He was playing in single A in the Padre system. Um, still has some at-bats to make up after, again, some injuries in the first half. So Fredericksburg is at home next week. They're hosting Augusta. Those games are on MILB TV. Again, you're going to want to watch James Wood just because of how big he is, how athletic he is, and how surprisingly athletic he is. He might surprise you if you just look at him and think like, okay, well, this guy's going to be big and slow. He's probably a corner guy. No, he's definitely a center fielder. Um, so having him join up with Fredericksburg, I think, is going to give Nats fans just what they're looking for at a time when you know, most of their attention is probably going to be paid towards their minor league affiliates. You're going to want to know what these guys look like. What was the point of trading Juan Soto if not to get back prospects? Get a good opportunity next week uh, to watch Fredericksburg at home and get a first look at James Wood. Tyler, what are you watching? I am going to go to that very Midwest League where Noel V. Marte will join the Dayton Dragons. Uh, Dayton fans got a chance to watch Ellie De La Cruz. Now they're going to get uh, Noel V. Marte. They've had a whole bunch of fun talent come through uh, in one of the minor league's coolest and most unique uh, venues and fan bases, the Dayton Dragons. They are at home uh, this weekend against Peoria and then at home next week against Lansing. So you can catch all those games at MILB.TV. And uh should be a fun couple of weeks coming up in the minors, especially next week with the Field of Dreams game um, in Iowa. So travel safe. Uh, enjoy the time. We'll get a chance to to hear all about it and uh, to break it all down. And um, have fun, man. Yeah, hopefully Ben and I are still on talking terms after driving never know after road trip. and half the country. I know. I think we're going to learn things about each other that – after years of working together and doing this podcast every week, there's still probably things we're going to learn. It's always dodgy. Which, yeah, which I, I think is going to be a good thing. I'm going to put my flag down and say we're going to come out closer as people, closer like as it. human beings after this trip. 
Um, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm very excited. I like the positivity. For Benjamin Hill, Josh Jackson, and Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon, and uh, rest in peace, Vince Scully. I'll talk to you next week. Thank <laughs> you.